This episode of the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast is brought to you by Maestro Classics, the creators of Stories in Music, a fun recorded series made for children and families to discover the thrill of classical music together. Featuring the London Philharmonic Orchestra, Stories in Music brings over a dozen exciting stories to life with the help of a narrator and colorfully illustrated booklets. From Peter and the Wolf and the Story of Swan Lake to a hilarious bel canto opera called Juanita the Spanish Lobster, these recordings are designed to introduce classic tales, history, and exciting musical performances to children. The Maestro Classic Stories in Music series has won over 50 national awards and garnered praise from parents, grandparents, teachers, and children alike. All Maestro Classic CDs are available at the Met Opera Shop at Lincoln Center and online at metoperashop.org. To learn more, visit maestroclassics.com. Bellini's Norma is a landmark role for sopranos. Audiences always wait with bated breath to hear her glorious aria, Casta Diva. But there is more to this opera and to this role. I'm Stuart Holt, and this is the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast. The Metropolitan Opera Guild is dedicated to enriching people's lives through an awareness and deeper appreciation of opera. Our podcast features lectures and events presented by the Guild in support of performances at the Metropolitan Opera. The Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast is funded in part by support from the Stuart J. Pierce Memorial Fund. To learn more, visit metguild.org. On September 25th, Sondra Ravinovsky opened the 2017-18 opera season, starring as the titular druid priestess in the Met's highly anticipated new production of Norma. Today, writer and opera commentator Nemet Hamashi explores notions of fidelity to family, to religion, and to love in Bellini's Bel Canto masterpiece. Only a very courageous composer would take on the heavens, Gods and goddesses, peace and war, fidelity, love, loss, human emotions caught in the crosshairs of circumstances over which poor mortals have no control. By his seventh opera, Vincenzo Bellini, a 25-year-old, was up to the formidable task of using this as a subject. The composer once said, Opera must draw tears, must horrify, must kill through singing, and in Norma he manages to do all of these things. The opera asks for every last ounce of energy from the performers and the total engagement of all of us in the theatre. We are not just sitting there. Norma was not only a very different kind of opera, but it stands out today as a -a one-of-a-kind kind of opera. It's not easy to just attend and just sit there for a while and then go home watch Colbert or Kimmel or whoever one watches and the news and go to bed. The opera weighs on us. It requires time to come away from, time to contemplate the terrible life responsibilities the protagonists have shared, and the execution of the most difficult music and the performances of larger-than-life characters. It is truly the Everest of operas. I take that from something that Renata Scotto said, and it was in the papers the other day. It's true. It's the Everest of operas. 
Soprano Lily Lehman said it was harder to sing Norma than three Brunhildes in a row. <laughs> Norma, the quintessential bel canto opera, requires incredible vocal control, range, and flexibility of dynamics. These have to reflect a huge panoply of emotions, personal and a public life. Norma, the high priestess representing the gods on earth. Norma's feelings as a woman versus her public role. Romantic and maternal love, friendship, jealousy, enough fury to be able to kill one's children, and on top of all that, resignation. Throughout, she never loses her dignity or her social standing or her maternal authority. She remains the epitome of nobility. And she has to have that kind of gravitas, I would call it, that does come naturally to some women. Vincenzo Bellini said he had to vomit blood for every opera. It's a little graphic, but <laughs> it's not hyperbole, mind you. He managed to work himself into an early death and he drove his librettist crazy. He gave him hell. He asked for revision after revision. Bellini was born into a family of musicians in Catania in 1801. The grandfather was his first teacher. His father was the local maestro di cappella. In those days, to hear music, you had to go to church or compose for the church. The only place you might hear music was in the theaters that were owned by the nobility. Only they really had access to that kind of music. Bellini, from the very beginning, composing at the age of six, mind you, apparently was brilliant at composing great melodies. And soon he was composing sacred music. Eventually, he came from a family of seven, and the family needed help if he was ever going to get an education. So enter the Duke of San Martino. His name, for what it's worth, is Stefano Notarbartolo. But anyway, he was the Duke of San Martino. He had enough money to send this very promising young man to the mainland, to Naples, to the conservatory known as the San Sebastian Conservatory. Naples had become the go-to place for the British looking for a better climate wherein to spend the winter. Now that Napoleon Bonaparte was safely stashed away on St. Helena and no longer threatening to rule Europe, to say nothing of the world if he could, so Italy, the British found and fell in love with it, and it was quite different from the Italy of today. According to Metternich, the Austrian statesman, Italy was a geographical expression. 19th century Italy, you see, was fragmented. Bits of it were ruled by Austria, other bits by Spain, and another part by France. And the Vatican also ruled a portion, and then, of course, there was the House of Savoy, which was based in Turin. There were 12 city-states. Rome and Naples were divided from each other, and you needed a passport to go between all these different towns, which is an amazing concept. 19th century Italy spoke French, German, and Italian. Bellini never mastered the French, which he needed socially. Apparently, his French was absolutely awful, but he spoke it happily everywhere he went. <laughs> With no one language in common, there had been little nationalist literature, though people could still revere Dante Alighieri and the Divine Comedy. And then, of course, there was Boccaccio and Petrarch and Tasso. But an Italian literary life would be rejuvenated in 1827 during Bellini's lifetime 
with the publication of Manzoni's very important literary classic, I Promessi Sposi, The Betrothed, which was the tale of a couple who had to fight to marry. And of course, it represented the Italians fighting the yoke of the Austrians. This was the first time that the Italians came together over something, and I Promessi Sposi remained a terrific read. During the first years of the 19th century, it fell to opera to stand in for literature as a nationalist medium. In effect, Rossini, Bellini, Donizetti, and Verdi substituted for England's literary giants, George Eliot, Thackeray, Charles Dickens, and Trollope. A less intellectual spin on Italy's love of opera was offered by a somewhat acid Hector Berlioz, who said, music for the Italians is a sensual pleasure and nothing more. They want a score that, like a plate of macaroni, can be assimilated immediately without their having to think about it or even pay any attention to it. Either way, the medium was immensely popular at home and abroad. Opera may have been Italy's greatest export. Italian composers were in demand everywhere. Baldassare Gualupe was working for Catherine the Great. Antonio Salieri, of course, was in Vienna. And non-Italian composers Handel, Haydn, and Mozart composed Italian operas. The fact that Italian opera was so popular frustrated two of the greatest composers of all time, Schubert and Beethoven. Their own efforts in the field were few. In the case of Schubert, mind you, there were nine operas out of 18 that he essayed that survive and are only now being recorded. And as for Beethoven, yes, he gave us Fidelio. That's the only one, mind you. A story goes that when a young Rossini met Beethoven, Beethoven said simply, write lots of barbers. In 19th century Italy, there were 200 towns with opera houses, each requiring two or three operas a year, one for each religious festival. That's about 600 productions a year, and it makes Broadway look rather paltry. Opera composers were expected to come up with about five operas a year. The young Bellini enjoyed the musical life of Naples very much, going to the glorious San Carlo Opera House. He was most impressed with Rossini's Semiramide and Moise, then playing, and Donizetti's Zingara and Spontini's La Vestale. But he was also jealous, and this was a trait that would undermine his very existence. There really was room for all these composers, but it is Bellini's tragedy that he was absolutely congenitally jealous of anybody all the time. In his school days, Bellini made a lifelong friend of Francesco Florimo. This is more of the San Carlo opera in Naples. And this is Florimo, who was the great friend and biographer of Vincenzo Bellini. Most of what we know of Bellini is taken from letters that were written during his boyhood. Despite the urgings of Bellini to Florimo to join him in Milan and Paris later on, this faithful friend stayed in Naples and became the conservatory librarian. The young Bellini cut a dashing figure during the eight years that he spent in Naples. He was slight and delicate and blonde. Heinrich, you know, the German poet, termed him a sigh in dancing shoes. <laughs> Bellini enjoyed the adulation that came for his accomplished pianism, his great charm, and attracted the attention of one Maddalena Fumaroli. She was 13 years old, and he 
stuck around, but by the time the family decided that, yes, it might be a go, Bellini was no longer interested, a pattern that would repeat itself many times. The ease with which Bellini composed melodies was quickly picked up by Niccolo Zingarelli. He was the man who ran the Naples Conservatory, and he was a fairly popular opera composer in his own right. He encouraged the young composer to write melodies, as that was what the audience would remember. Though he himself never took a voice lesson, Bellini, from the very beginning, knew a great deal about voice production. He understood early on the importance of words and the meaning and the emotion. What mattered was the libretto. It is the character and the interior life that drives a Bellini opera. This is Bellini, again, somewhat older. Bellini somehow knew how to reach deep into the human psyche, more than perhaps anybody else, except, I would suggest, Verdi. He was so concerned that the emotions and the story line emerged that, unlike contemporary composers, he used a very light orchestra, far less textured than some of the others. Rossini, you may remember, overwhelmed his audience with sound and lots of drums. Cartoons of the day illustrated Rossini's penchant for lots of orchestration and percussion. Here he is as a one-man band. <laughs> At the Naples Conservatory, Bellini was the star pupil, and as such, he was permitted to compose the great outing of the conservatory. He was going to write the production of the year. It was called Adelson and Salvini, or I suppose Adelson and Salvini. As it was never produced professionally, Bellini cribbed a number of pieces from it for some of his later operas. This was something that most composers did. This was the first of Bellini's many successes and led to his first professional production, which was Bianca and Fernando. But Bellini soon became known as the Swan of Catania. And it was the opera, um, the Adelson and Salvini, that was picked up by the man called Domenico Barabaya. And he's very important. He was a very shrewd impresario. He started out as a waiter in a cafe. And he's the one that made Rossini a household name. He knew a composer when he heard one. He was by now the intendant of the San Carlo Opera House in Naples and later on of La Scala. Barabaya was a bon vivant who moved in many circles. And the reason and the how and the why he made his money is that he introduced gambling into the opera house. He made a fortune. That includes La Scala. Barabaya swooped down on Bellini and signed him to a contract immediately. The opera world had been sorely lacking excitement now that Rossini had stopped composing operas and went off to a nice hedonistic life in Paris. There were only Mercadante and Pacini holding the fort, and La Scala was doing repeats, and a time of much musical innovation, mind you, but the opera was somewhat stagnant. People were getting excited about Berlioz's Symphonie Fantastique, and it was the height of Chopin ruling the recital world. It was Barabaya who introduced Bellini to the, to the librettist whom he would work with for, on seven out of his ten operas. His name was Felice Romani, and he looks rather debonair, don't you think? Romani was a classicist which suited Bellini just fine, and he was a very, very good poet. But Romani was a lackadaisical worker who never met his commitments on time, which drove the high-strung Bellini to his wit's end. But the two embarked on great successes. One was Il Pirata, mounted not so very long ago for René Fleming, and La Sonambula that followed. In both the theme is the betrayal of women by men. In Pirata, Imogen is accused of sexually betraying a man, and in Sonambula, 
Anina, Amina is blamed for sleepwalking into the wrong man's bedroom. Not a good idea. Bellini had already placed his stamp on opera composing by the time he was ready to tackle Norma. He wrote Florimo back in Naples. Notice how in Pirata, the verses and the situation inspire my talent. This is why I must have Romani as my librettist. It was a compliment to Romani, but it was also a statement that shows Bellini's commitment to the words. Bellini's arrival in La Scala meant working not for the first time with the top flight singers, including Giuditta Pasta. She was the reigning soprano of her day, and she was in her prime in her thirties, possessed of a voice that could straddle mezzo as well as soprano roles. Bellini and Pasta collaborated on La Sonambula, Beatrice di Tenda, and Norma. Oddly enough, Pasta had not yet sung at La Scala. Norma was her debut. Norma was based on The Infanticide, a French verse drama by Alexandre Soumet, which had been playing in recent times at the Odeon in Paris. It was played by a certain Mademoiselle Georges, and nobody cared terribly that the poetry wasn't very good. Soumet was no racine. The lines were somewhat lackluster. One of them that stands out, On ne peut faire un pas sans trouver un Romain. You can hardly take a step without tripping over a Roman. No one minded terribly, but the Romani kept an eagle eye on what was playing in Paris, and this was a popular drama that he thought could work. Bellini was immediately drawn to the possibilities, but there were concerns. The watchful censors might smell a potential incitement to unrest, equating the conflict between the Druids and the Romans with the subjugated Italians and their Austrian overlords. In the opera, the Gauls pray to their god Irminsul that he will liberate the Gauls from the enemy eagles. Zgrombre fara le galie dall'autile nemiche. The double eagle, don't forget, is the emblem of Austria. Here is Oroveso, as sung by Sam Raimi. The conductor was Richard Bonning on this recording. Bellini wrote a friend, I have made my will in case they murder me. Sumé had, of course, based his work on Medea, the princess of Colchis, enchantress and priestess of goddess Hecate. You will remember that Medea helped Jason in the Golden Fleece. In the Sumé version, Norma kills one son, jumps into a ravine with her second child. That's her way of protecting her children from being taken away as slaves to Rome. Romani turned down the horror somewhat. He came up with Norma's self-immolation instead of a mad scene that Medea usually gets to play. The effort was christened a protagonist's opera. The characters prevailed. Romani's wife tells us that there were eight versions of Bellini's Norma with Bellini constantly demanding new lines and changing his mind. For all the Sturm und Drang, the opera with its lyricism and those melodies and the scene painting and the well-crafted characters, was composed. Uh, surely it's a record. In those days, it was the singer, another shot of pasta, who called the shots. You never heard about the director, have you noticed? Not in the 19th century, anyway. 
The composer, even the proud and imperious Bellini, bowed to the dictates of his soprano. But by the time he was composing Norma, he had earned the right to demand, demand the best singers and the highest fees, even higher than Rossini. Now, once again, Bellini had the leading soprano of Italy capable of handling the range and power that his heroine demanded. Pasta had already proven herself worthy of having an opera composed for her, one which would draw on her ability to portray tragic grandeur. Flattered Judita Pasta by telling her that the role was perfect for her encyclopedic talents. He had a surefire way of creating his operas, especially when he knew he could count on the singer. This is what Bellini wrote once. I carefully study the characters, their dominating passions and their feelings. Then, invaded by the feelings of each one of them, I imagine that I myself have become whichever of them is speaking. And then, shut up in my room, I begin to declaim the lines of each person. And while I am doing that, I observe the inflections of my own voice, the haste or languor of the pronunciation in each circumstance. In short, the accent and tone of expression that nature gives a man or a woman in the grip of his passions, and I find the musical motives and tempi adapted to demonstrating it. Thus is Belcanto put into the service of the drama, as per Bellini. Giudita Pasta got to play the Duet Priestess, the leader of the Druid population in Roman-occupied Gaul. The occupation started in the reign of Julius Caesar and continued during the reigns of Tiberius and of Claudius. The whole thing was over by the second century. As the opera opens, the Druids are hoping for a signal to break the treaty that has been forged with the hated Romans, and they hope that the high priestess Norma will receive such a sign when she presides at a ceremony to cut the mistletoe at moonrise. But the high priestess tells her followers to leave thoughts of war behind us, as Rome will fall one day without a war, which indeed is what happened historically. She has reason to quell these calls for war. She's protecting her lover, Polione, the leader of the enemy. The very human, lofty priestess not only fell in love with Polione, she gave him two children. But now she's been cast aside. It seems Polione specializes in seducing druid priestesses. He is presently romancing Adalgisa, a novice priestess. Adalgisa succumbs the dashing Roman and goes off to get a dispensation of her vows from none other than the high priestess Norma. Norma graciously absolves the novice from her commitment, but is horrified to learn the name of Adalgisa's lover, just as Polione happens along. Where? You can imagine the fury. Here is a very, very angry Montserrat Caballé.
Act 2 opens with Norma resolving to kill her children rather than see them go to Rome with their father. They would be made slaves. Mercifully, she can't go through with it. Meanwhile, Adalgisa has decided to give up her love of Polione and stay in Gaul, and she and Norma swear undying friendship. That doesn't really resolve things either, but does make for some incredibly glorious music. I think you know which part is coming up. <laughs> but I wonder if you have any idea what is exactly the venue that you're hearing it from. Did anybody grow up with the Ed Sullivan show besides me? Well, everybody played the Ed Sullivan show at some point, and that goes for these two ladies who I suggest you know rather well. The duet, of course, begins with Mira or Norma, and uh, Joan Sutherland and Marilyn Horn distinguish themselves incredibly.
special. Well, we know things aren't going to go well from now on. Each character is going to through agonizing decisions involving either their own grief or everyone else's. Norma decides to kill her children, but can't do it. Instead, she goes for supreme sacrifice and suggests that Adalgisa go off for Leon. But Adalgisa, not to be outdone in the self-sacrificing department, goes off to Polione to end the relationship and send the errant lover back to Norma. Well, Polioni doesn't like that idea at all. Now bent on revenge, Pauls will declare war on Rome after all, but there has to be a sacrifice or else it won't go well. Norma decides in a decidedly bloodthirsty mood that Adalgisa, who has broken her vows, be sacrificed. She is about to strike Adalgisa with a dagger. She has a change of heart. It is she who has betrayed her people, and the gods must be avenged. And she prepares to mount the funeral pyre. Rather suddenly, Polione's love for Norma is rekindled. <laughs> Moved by her nobility and loftiness of spirit, he joins her in death. Pasta, who seems to have been a grounded, stable sort, had a family and was a good influence on the temperamental composer, the work between composer and soprano went fine, except that Pasta rejected the Casta Diva. Bellini composed eight versions of the aria. And then finally, when the last one was rejected, he suggested gently that Pasta work with it for a week and see if she still didn't like it, then he would change it. Pasta did indeed work with the aria, which was lowered by a tone for her, mind you, and she came to love it and sent the composer a gift cum apology consisting of flowers and a lamp. The flowers had accompanied her studies of the aria during the day, as she said, and the lamp her studies during the many nights. And with the gift came a generous note. Allow me to offer you something that was some solace to me during the immense fear that persecuted me when I found myself little suited to perform your sublime harmony. I cherish the desire to be ever more worthy of your esteem. Juditha Pasta, your most affectionate friend. So, to whom falls the honor of singing the Casta Diva? Thank you. 
Anybody know who it was? <laughs> it's a little tricky. It was Cecilia Bartoli. <laughs> Opening night came on December the 26th, 1831, and all seemed ready for yet another Bellini pasta success. In the words of Bellini, however, on that famous night, fiasco, fiasco, fiaschissimo. <laughs> the opera did not go over well on opening night at all. And in misery, Bellini wrote his friend, I am young and I feel in my soul the strength to avenge this terrible failure. But by the third performance, Norma was regarded as a smash of the season. Donizetti raved about it, an immense crowd, the lodgers, galleries and orchestra stalls, applauding virtually every number with delight and enthusiasm. You'd think Bellini would have been pleased, but he was furious at Donizetti. Bellini, jealous as always, only saw a plot or some kind of treachery. Bellini's sad credo was, friendship with the profession is impossible. He firmly believed that everyone was plotting against him, and that would take a toll on his health. Norma now took a life of her own. It was so popular that for a while it was being played twice a day with a different cast, and suddenly an awful lot of little girls were being called Norma. Even Richard Wagner who conducted Norma in Riga, said, Of all Bellini's creations, Norma is the one which unites the richest flow of melody with the deepest glow of truth. The flow of Bellini's music reminds a bit, actually, of Wagner. Verdi spoke of Bellini's melodies, lunghe, 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 which has become a phrase that describes the perfect melodic line. The only holdout, of course, was Berlioz, as usual, but then Berlioz never liked anything his contemporaries wrote. <laughs> Bellini now went on a heroic tour of his native Catania. The young hero did extremely well. His triumphal journey took him back to his native Sicily. He had a lovely time and then went back to Paris, wrote one more opera, I Puritani, with an unseasoned librettist. By now, Bellini had quarreled one too many a time with his with Romani. Paris offered too many distractions, and yet Bellini was lonely. He wrote his old friend Florimo, your existence is necessary to mine. But Florimo rejected the invitation to go to Paris and be with his friend. 
Bellini's nervous system apparently couldn't handle the new lifestyle. He was always cursed with delicate health, and it was now being taxed heavily. He wrote, These Parisians overwhelmed me with kindness, and indeed the soirees, balls, and suppers brought on me a sort of crisis. Bellini died quite alone in a home outside Paris belonging to friends after an 18-day attack of amoebic dysentery. Bellini joins a sad list of romantic geniuses who died young. Keats, Shelley, Chatterton, Mozart. It would have been interesting to see what they would have done had he had a little more than his 33 years. That's all he had. His legacy is enormous, starting with Liszt's reminiscences of Norma, and then there was the Princess Christine Belgioioso, who created an influential Paris salon. She invited all the famous composers of the day to do variations around a piece from I Puritani, and this was to benefit the widows and orphans of the Napoleonic Wars. Almost rarely heard today because it is so difficult to cast. Which brings us to Maria Callas. She sang Norma 18 times at La Scala, and it was her debut in New York. This is the Princess Belgioioso, and this, of course, is Callas. Callas sang with Mario del Monaco as Polione, and they brought the house down. Though by then there had been much turmoil backstage over Callas's salary and a vast testy correspondence with Rudolf being a test to that. Bing wanted Callas at any cost. In one finally exasperating letter, Bing wrote, The risk that between payment and curtain time she will walk out or drop dead, I am prepared to take. <laughs> the opening was grand. Someone who knew Callas was a young Fabrizio Melano, a Metropolitan Opera stage director who was assisting Franco Zeffirelli on staging Norma in Paris. The young Fabrizio described the look that passed over Callas's face when she realized that Polione did love her and was ready to sacrifice himself with her on the funeral pyre. Fabrizio said it was as if the sun rose and then there was an eclipse. She had won him back and Fabrizio couldn't bear to intrude on this incredibly personal scene of human love and devotion. I'd like to thank Yvette Robbie and Ellen Godfrey for their help in preparing this talk, Stuart Holt for being so ably handling all the electronics back there, and Peter Clark and John Penigno in the Metropolitan Opera Archives. I thought we'd close with Callas, still considered by many the greatest Norma, doing this portion of the, the scene before the Castadiva, calling on the Gauls. I think you'll agree, the gravitas is there.
That was Nemet Habashi talking about Bellini's Norma. If you enjoy our podcast, leave us a review in iTunes or send us an email at info at metguild.org. We always love hearing your thoughts and feedback. 
We will be back on October 11th with a new episode on Mozart's Die Zauberflöte, featuring a special guest from the Metropolitan Opera Orchestra. Until then, I'm Stuart Holt. Thank you for listening.